Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Uh, once again, Sean and Mike bringing you, we'll call it knowledge. Some of it you know, some of it's just purely for your entertainment. Either way, we're here for you. Mostly it's just to entertain you. We don't really know stuff. <laughs> uh, that's a fact. We're dumb. So today's episode will be the first of, I think, Mike's looking at maybe maybe two, maybe a third one. But we're going to look at some. Dude, I could do six, but we'll go with three. Three seems like a reason. Well, number. what I was going to say is three episodes going to get into much more detail on some of the common medications often found in the wilderness environment. Uh, today, we're going to look at pain meds because that's what everybody likes, right? So everybody likes their analgesics and their pain management stuff. Uh, you recall well over a year now, I think we talked about this, um, but we kind of, we glossed it over. We just mm -hmm. talked about some of the generalities, um, but we've had some folks talk to us and they'd like to get into a bit more of it. And people like to listen to knowledge vice have to read it themselves, which I totally get. Uh, that's why I like to watch a lot of videos and listen to podcasts to gain a lot of my stuff. So starting with this episode, we're going to start going into um, some more detail, as it were, on some of the medications used in wellness EMS. Yeah, some of these might sound like a repeat. Uh, I've also spent time writing up TXA and... Yeah, we're going to talk uh, about... Yes, and uh, uh, right. some other drugs. So, so there's things not related to pain management coming. This is just the beginning of the process, if you will. So some of these might sound like a duplicate effort, but they're much more detailed yeah, than we exactly, talked about right? before. Uh, and a caveat with that. Yeah. So like many things of wilderness medicine, there's nothing necessarily wilderness about pain management. Knowledge of your drugs, the pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, dynamics, et cetera, is pretty common across the board. It doesn't matter. It's purely where you're doing it. But in the wilderness environment, there are some things you have to be probably a bit more aware of that you need to take into consideration they do with your average urban 911, right? 15-minute transports. Most folks can get away with one, maybe two doses of a pain management drug of choice. And the wilderness, as you've heard us talk about before, that could be many, many doses, depending on what's going on, all right? So having a good, deep understanding of that medication's effect on the body, what it means over time. Because remember, these drugs don't just 40 minutes and, hey, we're done, and fentanyl's now purged from your system. They're going to start to build, right? So you got to understand that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so since musculoskeletal injuries are one of the most common, pain management seems like a good place to start. Uh, and again, if you find a lot of this information useful, let us know. Send us show topics, anything you want to hear about in general, not just on these meds and pain management stuff. If there's any other show topics you want to hear about, let us know. We'd happily entertain that, put some stuff together for you. All right. Uh, with that, I think we're going to get into it in our first drug. Mike's going to give to us is going to be some fentanyl. Yeah, so let's talk about fentanyl. I broke all these down into kind of structured, well, not kind of. I broke these down into structured pieces so that we're talking about the same framework for each Keep in mind, we're going pretty deep here. So if this is uh, too much information, let us know. I'm happy to not spend a bunch of time researching this stuff for you. But uh, this felt like the right level of depth. So feedback's going to be important on this episode. So what is fentanyl? It's a synthetic opioid. Uh, it's 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. Uh, it's prescribed typically 
for severe pain management. It is used in some other corner cases that I found, but in general, for this purpose, we're going to call it primarily a pain management medication. Uh, typically, in the pre-hospital environment, you get to administer it either via IV or intranasally, though uh, you can administer it IM, you can put it into an IO if the patient is severely injured and you don't have good IV access. But most of the time, you want to administer this IV or intranasally. Now, we're not going to go a whole lot, a whole deep into the differences in IV versus intranasal uh, injection or administration. Uh, just keep in mind that the best way to manage volume and effect over time, like the most effective means of getting medications to people is via intravenous uh, administration. So ideally, we've, we're going to administer this IV. There are some places moving toward fentanyl lollipops. Uh, there is actually usage of fentanyl lozenges as well. This is more common in a military setting, some, some European use cases. It hasn't really become popular in the U.S. yet, but it is starting to get talked about, so I'm bringing it up here. But I'm like getting into talking about dosing over time with lollipop-style items. Super hard to do. Ad administration of any oral medication is much more finicky, so we're going to stick to thinking about this as an IV administration. So for all the medications we're going to talk about today, I've also focused on something called Half-Life. If any of you listening are paramedics, you should remember this from paramedic school. If any of you have any sort of science background, you should understand Half-Life. But if not, just for clarity, the Half-Life is technically defined as the elimination time frame to reduce the total amount of a medication in the body by 50%. It's not directly associated with the effects of the medication. It's associated with the time it takes to reduce the total concentration of the body by 50%. And you can actually have a half-life after that and half-life after that and half-life after that. Where this comes into play is in remembering it with fentanyl and all medications we're going to talk about today, that the effective dosing is not the same thing as the half-life. So fentanyl is typically talked about as having about a 30 to 60 minute impact period. But the half-life is actually between two and four hours for a healthy, properly metabolizing patient. So this is going to come up, I'm going to stop saying this, but it's going to come up with all of them. Just because the fentanyl, the effects of the pain management for the patients might not be working as well, 60, 70, 80 minutes after you administer the medication, it doesn't mean that there isn't still medication present in their system. And redosing, this is where we also get into the concept of drips over time and stuff, maintaining a baseline. But if you bolus fentanyl and then 45 minutes later, your patient's like, oh man, the pain's really bad and your protocols allow it and you bolus the same amount again, you've actually increased the total amount of fentanyl flying around in their system then higher than the level that you had originally uh, introduced with your first bolus because not all of the medication is gone. It's just that the half-life has met the point where the administration is not having the effect we want. Uh, usually pretty quick to act, takes about five minutes or less. It's a highly, I might screw up this word, lipophilic, lipophilic. Yeah, yeah, that one. Uh, it just means that it dissolves yes, easily it. in fat, fat soluble lipids. Yeah, it's fat soluble. Uh, your cell membranes are made up mostly of lipids. So medications that are lipophilic or easily broken down inside of fats are typically also found to be very, very the cell membrane very quickly, and thus you get the, or they, they cross, excuse me, they cross the cell membrane very easily. And as such, you end up getting a, a very quick response. Um, so as I mentioned, it's largely used for pain management. Approximately 30 to 60 minutes after administration is when you get the peak 
uh, efficacy. It usually happens within 10 minutes, and then it'll slowly titrate off as the medication uh, is burned up, metabolized by the body. So what does it do? Here's, here's the interesting parts, and this is, this is pretty germane to, uh, to wilderness providers in general, because it's really easy to run in a, front, a, quote, front country or urban setting where you're 10 minutes from the hospital, you give them, you know, 50 mics of fentanyl, takes the edge off, and all of these secondary effects and, and understanding how these medications act on the body is sometimes largely forgotten about because we're not with the patient that long. But in a wilderness setting, it could be 6, 10, 12, 15, a couple of days. 15 hours, a couple of days. Um, and so you have to kind of understand these effects in more depth. So fentanyl acts on the brain and the spinal cord. Uh, it binds to the myopic receptors. That's one of the fancy where there's a few of them out there. Opiate receptors, another common term. Um, they're primarily in the brain. There are some in your spinal column. And these receptors are res primarily responsible for pain and emotion management or uh, emotion reaction. So you're primarily mucking with the pain sensors, but just keep in mind that you can have some adverse emotional reactions depending on how the patient reacts to the medication. As a side effect, fentanyl and opiates in general actually increase dopamine levels in the brain as well. So this is what is what's causing what, what is often referred to as the illegal use of opiates. Uh, this is where you get the euphoric feeling. This is where you get the relaxed feeling. This is the quote-unquote uh, addict's feeling that they're constantly chasing, but it's never as good as the first time they did the heroines or the morphines. It is also directly correlated with the suppression of the respiratory system. It's commonly the dopamine and the relaxed sensation is actually what causes the suppression. It's not actually the fentanyl itself. This is commonly talked about in EMS as though fentanyl caused the person to stop breathing. What you've actually done is just um, produced enough dopamine that the body kind of is like, meh. I'm so relaxed, I don't really want to breathe. It doesn't actually, surprisingly, have a direct effect on the respiratory drive. You just kind of think of it as you kind of force yourself to forget to breathe. How's that? It's talked about a lot in pre-hospital use. I've already done diatribes on, oh my God, like if you get fentanyl in your hands, you're not going to die. Um, <laughs> in long-term use, and this isn't as bad uh, as morphine sometimes, but it can cause nausea especially if you keep their fentanyl levels relatively high for more than a day. It's been found that nausea and some constipation in some folks, right? So opiates in general muck with the, can't think of the word now, the massaging function in your intestines. Uh, they kind of slow it down. So you can get constipated. The biggest concern pre-hospitally, especially in the initial administration, is respiratory depression. Um, but if you're, if you're in a situation where it's more than a day or two, uh, constipation and fluid retention can also be a thing. So you just want to keep that in mind. So who do we not give it to, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, any, anyone with an allergy to morphine, and if they have an allergy to morphine or opiates, uh, fentanyl falls into that bucket. So if the patient says, oh, no, dog, I'm allergic to opiates, don't give them fentanyl. Um, if they're already respiratorily depressed, it's kind of contraindicated. So if it turns out they've had an event like a brain injury that's causing them to not breathe so good, giving them morphine, obviously this, this would be kind of surprising, but uh, probably shouldn't use fentanyl. Um, there are some limited cases where folks with severe asthma or other respiratory problems have some real, real bad reactions to fentanyl. 
Uh, it's not common, but if, if you get in the habit of asking, hey, do you have like severe asthma, like really bad asthma? My first reaction would be, why, why are you deep in the woods? <laughs> My second reaction would be, well, now that you're here, uh, it turns out maybe we won't use fentanyl. Maybe I'll reach for something else in my my available repertoire. Um, that's kind of a per case basis. Normally, if the patient has severe asthma and they've had adverse reactions before, they'll know it. If they have severe asthma and they've never had an opiate before, eh, you're kind of rolling the dice. But in general, it's it's pretty uncommon. Um, Anybody with a pre-existing uh, gastrointestinal gastrointestinal obstruction, again, we've talked about fentanyl as being, uh, you know, slows down the bowels. So if they're already impacted, uh, there were actually two arguments, right? One was like, don't do that because they're impacted. The other argument was, well, if you have a patient that's in severe pain and they're already impacted from some other event, impacting them more ain't going to hurt it much. But in general, it is considered contraindicated for anybody with a known gastrointestinal obstruction or severe anomalies in, in how their uh, intestinal tract functions. And then finally, and this is the one that is often not talked about much other than, oh my God, don't do it. Um, anybody that's on an MAOI inhibitor, um, Typically in, in EMS protocols, you will see something like anyone on MEOI inhibitors should not be given fentanyl. That's, I'm never going to tell you to not follow your existing protocols, but I think it's important we understand why. So MAOI inhibitors muck with the brain's ability to produce dopamine and other things. So what you actually end up doing by giving high levels of fentanyl to somebody that's already on an MIOI inhibitor is driving their dopamine levels up so high that you can end up with some, excuse me, adverse reactions, um, namely serotonin syndrome. Um, but it's, the, the literature wasn't clear to me when researching this exactly how often this happens and uh, what the risk is. That said, excuse me, serotonin syndrome is not something I want to mucking with in the wilderness environment. Uh, it just doesn't appeal to me. So we're going to avoid it at all costs. And uh, for our listener friends out there, if you're not familiar, MAOIs are generally your antidepressant drugs. So if your patients are telling you they've got depression oh, yeah. and do you take meds for that? Yes, I do. There's a good chance it's either going to be an MAOI or an SSRI. And if you're going to give them some of the, the fentanyl, you might want to try and if you've got access do a quick search and see which one that you're talking about so that you kind of avoid some of those issues Mike's been talking about. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I feel like I'm droning on and on, but I said I was going deep. So here comes, here comes some deep sciencey stuff. You ready? Show you guys deep on. This is coming. It's coming hot. Is it? I'm waiting. <laughs> so fentanyl's broken down in the liver. Uh, there's a, a set of enzymes known as cytochrome. P453A4 or CYT3A4. Why do we care? Well, typically in an EMS environment, we don't. But it's important to know that the, if the patient has any other liver conditions, including just severe dehydration um, or any other medications that interact with the CYP3A4, see, I got it right twice, enzymes, uh, it can slow down or blunt the breakdown of the medication. So is it important to start doing? Liver enzyme function tests in the wilderness? <laughs> Absolutely not. 
But it is probably important to at least ask the patient if it's going to be a long extended carryout. Hey, do you have any other liver problems? This isn't necessarily going to stop you from using fentanyl, but it certainly may have an impact on how you calculate dosing or consider medication administration because if they can't break it down that well, they don't need as much fentanyl over time. Because as we discussed earlier, the half-life is actually about two to four hours, though fentanyl's pain analgesic effects usually wear off in about 45 to 60 minutes. So if they're not breaking it down so well, they may not need as much pain medication over time. Or you may end up inadvertently giving them enough medication that you cause a reaction to their respiratory drive. And then you've got a different problem that you need to be solving for. Obviously, I'm just going to say as a general rule, if you're slinging opiates, you should have Narcan with you as well, uh, along with the ability to BBM and provide uh, respiratory support, as ventilatory, I should say, support as necessary. But it is worth understanding that if their liver enzymes, namely the CYP3A4 <laughs> enzyme, is not properly functioning, uh, they may have a hard time metabolizing the fentanyl, which can take longer to break it down. Um, also, as I mentioned, the MIO inhibitors, you can inadvertently push, I've mentioned this, but you can push them into serotonin syndrome. Um, this is due to the increased dopamine production of both fentanyl and the fact that the MAOI inhibitors are actually slowing down the breakdown of dopamine already. So just be careful with anybody that's on antidepressant drugs. Finally, it's probably worth note that there is a small, a small subset of folks that severe hypotension occurs with the use of, of fentanyl. That is actually a side effect. And you can get bradycardic effects. So you want to monitor them closely. But that's now that I've said the words out loud because I wrote them down earlier, I feel silly because, yeah, like as a good provider, you should be monitoring your patient. Don't be slinging opiates and then being like, he's cool. I'm going to go sit up front. That's, that's not how we provide care. So, yeah, always monitor your patients. Whew. I feel like I've been talking forever. I went, I went long. Yeah, now. congratulations. All right. Thanks, buddy. Well, in, in, in keeping up. I'm going to have a lot of editing to do yeah, on this one. Always do. For sure. That's how good we are. Yeah. All right. So next one we're going to talk about is everybody's favorite drug. If you could see it, I'd have my SpongeBob ketamine, ketamine for everything sticker. Um, so we're going to talk about some ketamine. And like that, we're going to start off with what is it? So ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist. Uh, and so NMDA, it's got a science name. I'm not going to go with that just because we're never going to use it again because nobody uses anything outside of NMDA. But what you need to know is it's the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain, right? So we're messing with the neurotransmitters directly in the brain. So ketamine is blocking the NMDA receptors, right? So if you think about that, the neurotransmission piece, we're kind of blocking neurotransmission of your brain receiving certain signals. And in this instance, we're talking about pain, right? Uh, so ketamine is very useful for a lot of things. Uh, for us, most predominantly, pain management. Procedural sedation, right? So you can give lower doses of ketamine where you're going to kind of give your patient a bit of the sedative effect without fully putting them out. Uh, just if you need to, you know, reposition a fractured limb or something to that effect. There are some, in my opinion, some better drugs you could use for this, uh, for the procedural sedation piece, just because dosing with ketamine can be a bit finicky uh, for those of you that use it know. Uh, and uh, the one that really gets it the bad rap is it's used in excited delirium, which we're not really going to discuss too much here, uh, but just know that that's one of its other primary uses, right? And this is something I actually uh, just saw on a 
couple of other, I don't remember, educational things I was looking at. Looking at ketamine in severe asthma cases, we're not going to talk about that here. There's a lot of new research coming out with that for people who, you know, the normal bronchodilators and everything else are not having as strong an effect as we would like. They're looking at ketamine and its impact and how that might actually be beneficial for folks having these issues. But again, we're not going to talk about that here. We're going to focus primarily on the sedation and pain management pieces. So how do we give our ketamine? Uh, just like every other drug, primarily we're talking IV or IO, especially pain management. IV is the best. Um, yes, you can do intramuscular with ketamine, though, just like Mike mentioned before, there's some you know, rates of absorption. What part of the body did you put it in? How quickly is it going to take effect? How long is it going to last? There are some just the intricacies with intramuscular that may or may not be your best choice. But if you have somebody and you can't get that access, absolutely. Uh, intranasal, again, I'm not a big fan of the intranasal ketamine. This is one of those if you're wrestling with the guy type of, you need that procedural sedation or not procedural necessarily, but that excited delirium, like you just need somebody to chill out now and you don't necessarily want to have a needle out, shooting some ketamine up the nose might get a mellowed out just enough for you to take care of business. But intranasal is really not, in my opinion, one of the better options for ketamine administration as it could be with, you know, like fentanyl or morphine. All right. We've kind of talked about some of the other stuff with that. So half-life. Uh, again, half-life's about two to three hours in your normal person. There's a lot of things that affect the half-life uh, and its duration of action, right? How quickly your body's going to metabolize it. This is where you see a lot of fluctuations in different people. Some people metabolize certain drugs really quickly and some do not. And that drug will last a lot longer than you expect it, which goes back to, as Mike mentioned before, you got to be paying attention, see what's going on with your patients and pay attention to what you're dosing and when. All right. Generally, remember this is generally in your pain relieving dose range, uh, anywhere one to two hours, depending on how much you've given. And again, that could be metabolized a bit faster for some people. Sedation at our higher doses, okay, depending on how much it is, uh, they might be out for 15 to 20 minutes, could be longer. So there's, yeah, there's different levels of sedation with ketamine. Um, we're not going to get super, super deep with, with that per se with this one, but fully disassociative or just at that sub disassociative level. So they could be kind of quasi alert, but they're just, you know, they look like that high patient. They're just like, hopefully all smiles and just looking around, trying to touch the butterflies that aren't really there or those that are having a, a negative reaction to ketamine, which fortunately I've only seen once, but, uh, that patient did not like the experience. And that, that was a different reason why that was occurring. But, uh, and we actually, we might talk about that if we bring that up in a bit. All right. So, and then fully disassociative, like this is the one where you are laying the patient out and they aren't going to generally remember anything that occurs. And this can have benefits depending on what your needs are with your patient. All right. And again, depending on how much you've given, it can take a patient anywhere from one to maybe three hours to fully come back into their full awareness. You will have some patients who you will think are back to their full level of consciousness and awareness. And then they'll start asking you a couple of silly questions and you'll be like, oh, you're really not fully back with me yet. Got it. Okay. So just keep an eye on that. Something too, just because they're kind of awake and talking to you does not mean that they are necessarily cognitively fully functioning yet. Okay. All right. 
So what systems does ketamine work on? All right, as we talked about in the beginning, it's an NMDA receptor antagonist, right? So meaning it blocks the NMDA receptors involved in the pain transmission and memory formation. Again, we're talking about neurotransmitters in the brain. So we're blocking things essentially at your brain from your brain, taking that info and processing it. Right? So when it binds, it prevents the normal actions of glutamate, which again is, is one of those primary receptors that allows the transmission of the signals across the synapse in the brain. For those of you who forgot your bio 101 stuff, the synapse is that gap between the nerve cells where the nerve transmission goes from one cell to the next and travels along the body. So if you interrupt that gap, you stop the whatever the sensory transmission is from reaching the brain and your body's acting accordingly. So here's one that I don't know if it's really made the news a lot lately, but it's catching on a lot more in the pre-hospital environment. And that is the correlation of ketamine administration and catecholamine depletion, right? So normally when ketamine is administered, you'll see an increase in heart rate and blood pressure, maybe, or it'll relatively stay normal tensive in the normal ranges. And ketamine causes a catecholamine release. So if you have somebody who is already usually found in, in these patients who are already very shocky, pretty bad trauma patients, et cetera, and they're looking already fairly catamine, catecholamine depleted, meaning their body is like a big epi adrenaline dump. They've pushed out all the catecholamines trying to keep heart rate up, keep blood pressure at a sustainable level, et cetera. And then you drop the ketamine. Well, that's when you're suddenly going, holy cow, I've just put my patient into, you know, could be a peri-arrest state or it could push them towards a full arrest. So something to keep an eye on. Think about your patient, what their current condition is. If you think that your patient is already in a very catecholamine depleted state, administer your fentanyl judiciously and cautiously. All right. Not saying necessarily don't do it, but if you have a different option for your pain management or your sedative needs, right? You're trying to get your patient sedated a bit so that you can do additional procedures. Because sometimes as, as you've, well, I'm hoping, well, maybe not, I'm hoping, but most of us have seen patients where you need to sedate them just so you can do some work on them to save their lives. It's like, hey man, I've got to lay you out so I can not let you die with me right now. All right, so keep an eye on your patients. Have that in the back of your mind. And if you're thinking, mm, this could be a thing, just be prepared to react, okay? Uh, contraindications. Typically contraindicated people uh, with extremely high blood pressures, and of course, those with known hypersensitivities to ketamine. Now, uh, we're not really, we didn't mention it too much in here. The thing with ketamine, right? And there have been some studies, and I don't have any of them handy, but they have done just 100 milligrams per kilogram and administering it to people. And if done properly, all it does is sedate them longer, right? It's, you know, 500 milligrams of ketamine in and of itself, if administered correctly, will not just kill a patient outright, generally speaking. There's always those outliers, right? Ketamine is one of those drugs that, especially the higher doses, you need to be giving this at a slower rate. This is why a lot of places, even for their pain management doses of, of a few milligrams, prefer to run it as a drip over five or 10 minutes. Um, so if you're trying to sedate a patient and you're using that one or two migs per kg dosing rate, push that slow, right? That's not one that you just take and you just slam that thing as fast as you can shove the plunger to the bottom. Okay, that's when you're going to run into those sudden respiratory depression problems and end up killing patients, right? So 
It's not so much the dose that's doing the negative things to you. It's how fast you gave that dose. So keep an eye on that. Uh, and of course, caveat with any medication discussions here, follow your local procedures, blah, blah, blah. Don't violate from your stuff just because we said something. Do what your yeah. doctor says. The license you save will be your own. All right. So what are the concerns we have for wilderness use? Honestly, not much. Ketamine is, generally speaking, an extremely safe drug. The dosing is important. Pain dosing typically is at 0.1 to 0.3 mg per kg. Uh, this is definitely one you should keep your, do your weight-based dosing on it. Don't just swack it like most of us do with fentanyl and go call it 50 mics and we'll see where you're at. Okay, even though fentanyl is technically supposed to be administered by weight as well. 0.1 to 0.3. That's your normal pain management dose, right? Mix per kick. When we're trying to go into some of that sedative properties, that's when we're talking that one to two mg per kick. It can go as high as a lot of places. Some places will go as high as four milligrams per kilogram. Uh, there are, I'm sure, are other medical applications that will go higher depending on their need. Uh, but generally, we're not getting above that range. All right. The one thing we are going to talk about with ketamine is the emergence reaction. So if you've ever given somebody a bit of ketamine and they start kind of coming out of it and they start having that bad trip experience, that's the emergence reaction. Uh, so I don't know if it works. I have never had a negative emergence reaction with ketamine. Um, but I was taught many moons ago that when you're administering this, you know, try to tell your patients to go to their happy place, think good, happy thoughts, uh, just because you want them in a good mental space as they're getting this drug, as everything comes off. The theory behind that is as they come back out and the pieces start coming back together, those happy thoughts is where they pick up and you're trying to avoid the emergence reaction. Uh, but that is something that you should be aware of that when your patients are starting to come out of those heavier doses, you could see, um, we'll call it, you know, I, I think the bad trip for those of us of parents of the 50s and 60s, we understand that one better. But there might have some just really like, they're kind of freaked out. Things are going on. They don't understand what's going on. There might be some a bit of yelling, a lot of confusion. So just be prepared for that. And the answer is not necessarily just whack them with another, you know, a couple of milligrams of ketamine because you didn't kill the emergence reaction. You've just delayed it a minute. All right. So there are some ways around it. And we'll talk about that here. So you got to watch your dosing with ketamine. Like I said, this is the one that you honestly really need to do your best with your weight-based dosing. Uh, you know, for a lot of my drugs, weight-based, I'll, I'll do the simple math. You know, humans come in three sizes, small, medium, and large, 50, 75, and 100 kilos. Keep my math simple. Ketamine is one of those drugs where I really try to know my patients, no kidding, weight, and do the math just so you can avoid some of these things. And that is also very important in, in my experience with just even the pain dose range. If you're off by a couple of milligrams, you could put your patients you, into that, you know, more recreational drug use range of ketamine, which can also have some negative uh, effects on your patients. So do, take the time, do the good math, and do it right, right? So again, your emergence reactions, what might you see? Hallucinations, disorientation, delirium, severe anxiety, right? They might be kind of freaking out, yelling, what's going on? Get it off me. I don't like this, blah, blah, blah. Nausea vomiting is always a possibility with any of these negative drug reactions. The, the simplest, most common way people avoid these things, a little bit of the benzos, right? Most of us, Versed, you know, if that's what you've got, that's what I, I'm a big fan of Versed as well. Give them a good benzodiazepine, chill them out. A lot of people will say, oh, after I give them, you know, my 200 mg of, of ketamine, I'll also give them another five mg of, of my benzo right after that. 
you know, got to start looking at those half-lives and how long drugs are acting, right? Because if that ketamine lasts longer than your benzo, your benzo didn't help you with your emergence reaction, okay? So it's not necessarily, I just hit them with A and then a couple minutes later, I follow up with B. That isn't necessarily the answer either. Yeah. with B, just give it to them, they'll be fine. Yeah, yeah so that's what I'm saying is keep an eye on your patients and if you notice them starting to have that emergence reaction, I'm not advocating necessarily you have a syringe drawn up with some benzos handy, but your vial and your administration kit should be fairly close by so that if you see it starting to happen, it doesn't take you that long. You know, those are pretty standard doses as far as most of us for benzos. Give them that quick two, two and a half, whatever, maybe the full five milligrams. Top that on there, mellow them out a bit. And usually by the time that wears off, the ketamine's gotten to a point where it's not as bad and you've avoided those. Uh, but it is something to keep an eye out for. And like I said, I have personally never had an issue with the emergence reaction. And the one thing I was going to talk about before is if you have a jurisdiction that has a blanket, you give this much ketamine for pain, regardless of patient weight. In my opinion, that's not a good thing. Okay. Because giving, just as an example, you know, if we're using 0.2 make per keg, so 20 milligrams for 100 kilo gags, we're keeping it simple. Well, 20 milligrams might be great for me because I weigh 100 kilos, right? But when I have that 50 kilo, tiny 20 year old yoga fitness ultra marathoner, that might be too much and might put them in that party dose range and they might have a negative reaction with that. So it is my opinion. And again, this is quite frankly, they yeah, probably this, will. And I'm just saying, I've had a couple of experiences with these just blanket baseline. Hey, everybody for pain gets this much. I'm not a fan of that. Just because anytime I've had a negative reaction with ketamine, it's because of that. And again, follow your local protocols, your OMDs, your OMD, like do what's right based on your, where you practice. But I'm a big fan that you need to be doing your actual math and doing your dosing correctly. All right. So that's going to wrap up ketamine. Again, a good multi-purpose drug. I absolutely love having it. Uh, the best thing about ketamine is it comes in a big vial generally. And if you've got those very long extended patient movements, you've got more ketamine accessible to you than you do, you know, normally fentanyl or morphine. And with that, Mike's going to take us down another rabbit hole with morphine. Mike's liking the opiates today. Do, 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 filler noises while Mike prepares to edit. That's right. I'll just yeah, edit that out. Edit the awkward pause. Yeah, I got this. So, uh, all right. The other obvious one used is morphine. This has been around a long, long time. So hopefully everybody that's taken paramedic training since, uh, since 1985 is at least aware of the existence of morphine. It, interestingly enough, morphine was the first drug in wide use that was actually synthesized from plants, which I didn't know until I was recording or researching all this. But let's jump into it. So morphine is also an opiate, unlike fentanyl, even though I wrote down ketamine in the notes, unlike fentanyl, morphine is actually naturally occurring. Uh, it's manufactured from the resin produced by drying opium poppies, or opum poppies, excuse me, not opium poppies. The plant is an opium plant. It has opum poppies. You dry those puppies out, you take the resin out of that mamma jamma, you do some stuff to it, and before you know it, you got morphine, aka heroines. Given the name, you shouldn't be surprised that it falls into the category of an opiate analgesic. And just like fentanyl, it binds to the opiate receptors. I've already said, so I'm not going to say the thing that's written down here. Opium is just like fentanyl. It's an, excuse me, morphine is just like fentanyl. It's an opiate. The big kicker is it's naturally produced and it's been around a lot longer. 
We administer it just like we would fentanyl. IV is the preferred route. You can administer it IN. Some places allow for it to be administered IO. I'm finding that kind of varies. And there aren't a whole lot of places that are blasting it up the nose, though I have seen protocols that say you can administer it intranasally as well. But for the purpose of this discussion, again, we're really sticking to understanding morphine at an IV administrative style. So interestingly enough, morphine has the same half-life, give or take, of fentanyl. It's about two to four hours. But oftentimes in classes, we talk about morphine as having a long, a uh, much longer acting effect for patients that you're going to be treating for a long period of time. That is true. While the half-life for morphine is the same, right? The amount of time it takes to get to a 50% dosing, it does vary slightly in how you metabolize it, and it does get metabolized slightly slower. Uh, so the total amount of medication that is floating around is about the same amount, but the, the metabolism rate for morphine is a little slower, so you get a more flatline, slightly longer-acting pain management effect. Similar morphine, as I mentioned, it acts on the same receptors in the brain. It can also cause increased dopamine levels in the brain, as we talked about with fentanyl. It's also talked about as having a more aggressive suppression to the respiratory system. I've not personally seen people fall out from morphine the way it's talked about, like, oh my God, they're going to stop breathing if you do it. But it is worth note that morphine can, just like fentanyl, have a uh, respiratory suppression effect through the dopamine release. It is, it is generally cautioned that you should be ready to bag someone if you're giving morphine, especially if you give it too quickly. And the effects, I will say I've seen this personally, the the hypotensive effects of morphine tend to be greater than fentanyl. Again, in, in pain management, pre-hospitally, in the wilderness, this is something we have to think about a little bit more. Not because it is more prevalent that when you administer the dosing, people have a hypotensive effect more often in the woods. If you're going to have a hypotensive effect to the morphine, you're going to have the effect. Where this becomes important is if we're doing repeat dosing or dripping morphine and we're dripping it in slightly faster or faster, then the body can metabolize and eliminate it. Then over time, as we're providing pain management in boluses or in a drip for an extended period of time, you can end up inadvertently suppressing respiratory drive long after you've started the administration. So just because you gave it and they seem to be reacting well doesn't mean that over time they won't stop breathing because it built up in their system. When you combine morphine with MAOIs, just like fentanyl, you do run the risk of agitation, hallucinations, tachycardia, fever. These are all the same effects with fentanyl. Uh, they're pretty rare, but you need to be aware of it. If somebody has a known allergy to morphine, don't give it to them. I wrote this down. It's the most logical thing in the world. But if the patient says, dude, I'm allergic to morphine, don't be like, cool, let me give you some morphine. Don't do that. I've already talked about the slowed breathing. It is worth note that most protocols that I've seen in my time doing this indicate that if there is something else like a brain injury or other injury that is causing respiratory depression, morphine is not the preferred method of pain management. I don't know how common that is that, you know, somebody's got respiratory suppression from, from a head injury or some other event. So we're like, well, let's go ahead and manage their pain. Usually we're like, huh, we should probably focus on breathing for them. But don't go slinging morphine if it turns out your patient's not breathing. That's, that's not a good idea. And just like we mentioned with fentanyl, uh, severe respiratory, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, or other respiratory-related problems can be exasperated by morphine, so be careful. Yeah, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about altered mental state and such. These are all kind of known quantities. Uh, sometimes it is talked about in some protocols as a not a good choice for abdominal pain because it, quote, masks the abdominal pain. Uh, I think in general, EMS has gone away from that, certainly in a wilderness environment. Like, 
if you have somebody that has pain and you need to sit and manage the pain in order to allow them to be comfortably extricated, whatever receiving facility is unable to exactly figure out what's going on with their abdomen because their their pain is generally managed and the morphine is doing its job. Well, I hope they have modern technology <laughs> like imagery because I'm not what? going to not manage yeah, exactly. their pain. But it is, it does show up in protocol still, right? Oh, well, if they have abdominal pain, don't give them morphine because it masks the symptoms. Yeah, so does every other pain management medication, but pain sucks, so we should treat it. Um, <laughs> overall, when we're talking about specific wilderness use cases, uh, it's very similar to fentanyl, but the big takeaway here, and this, this gets talked about more than fentanyl, is morphine does take a little bit longer to work through the system sometimes, especially with folks that are not properly warmed. And doing additional doses of morphine or dripping morphine over time can result in a more, I'll call it a more exaggerated respiratory depressive state. There's some other stuff that I found in research that I didn't really write down, but I'll mention it here. Not so much for the wilderness provider, but just a good provider in general. You've been taking morphine for a long time. It can cause neural twitching and other sort of secondary effects. If you're with somebody in, the, in a wilderness rescue setting that they've been taking, you've been giving them morphine so long that they're getting muscles, uh, neural spasms and twitches and such, you've been giving yeah. morphine yeah, you've been, a long yeah, time. A lot of morphine. Uh, that's more of a hospice thing than a, uh, than a wilderness rescue thing, but it is worth note. And in general, I would just steer clear if your patient has any sort of indication that they're allergic to opiates. I think in that case, well, Sean's going to talk mm -hmm. about Torlac, mm -hmm. but Tortol at that point might be a better choice. And I know how much Sean loves his Tortol, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and let him talk <laughs> right. about it. And I'm not even talking about the, the treatment of pain for patients. I'm talking about how much Sean loves taking Tortol. Actually, that's true because I've had to have Tortol yeah. and that stuff is the bomb. All right. But before we get into Tortol, uh, Mike mentioned something with morphine there about people with brain injuries. And I just want to go back to ketamine. And so there used to be a big thing about ketamine and patients with potential TBI and it could cause intracranial swelling and stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. All the recent literature and everything I've listened to or read in recent years is, nope, that's not a thing. So if ketamine is your drug and you have a patient where you've got some concerns about some, you know, brain swelling or brain bleed or any other TBI-related brain injury, ketamine's okay, right? They've not found that it has any negative impact on TBI. It's cool. Um, but again, local protocol, blah, blah, blah. All right, after that... Do what the doc says. So we are. We're going to talk about Ketorolac, better known as Toradol. And I am a huge fan of this one. Outside of, we'll call it the narcotic pain management tools, this one is is up there at the top. I love this thing. I've, yeah, yeah, I've been a fan. I've, I've used it myself uh, many moons ago. Got injured, uh, decided I was staying on the operation in Fortunately enough, I was able to take uh, pills, right? Some oral Toradol and man, I could tell immediately the next day when that stuff was gone after my little pack of, of supplied pills ran out, it was like, mm, I'm sore again. This is no fun, right? So Toradol is awesome. Uh, with that, what is it? It is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. It's an NSAID, folks. When I explain it to people, I usually tell them it's like super Motrin because that's essentially what it is. It's an NSAID. It's just stronger, a little more powerful, and really has a, an excellent pain management quality to it. Uh, so what is the half-life from Tordal? This one is kind of the oddball out from the ones we've talked about so far, because its half-life is five to six hours, which is almost twice as long as the rest of them. What's that mean? Nothing. It means the half-life is five to six hours. It means it hangs out in your system a bit longer. 
All right. Uh, how do we give our tortle? Primarily pre-hospitally, it's, it's intravenous. Uh, you can give this one intramuscular if you want. Problem is, Tordol is usually like a, a 30 milligram dosing, depending where you're at and depending on your concentration. So it's hard to shoot 30 milligrams, which is usually putting in a few mLs up somebody's nose, right? So, And if you did it intramuscular, you might have to do it in a couple of different spots, depending what your protocols are and how much you're allowed to dose per injection site. So this one is most often done intravenous. I've never seen it pre-hospitally in pill form as I had with the, uh, with the government, but I would actually really like to have that in the wellness setting. That would be pretty handy. Pills would be cool, but I've not yeah. seen that personally. Uh, so with that, again, half-life, five to six hours. What's it act on? All right, like the rest of the NSAIDs, works by inhibiting the enzymes known as your cyclooxygenases, COX-1 and COX-2. That's right, I said that. These NSAIDs, Nailed that, dude. I done went to college. These enzymes are involved in the production of prostaglandins and are substances the body promotes inflammation, pain, and fever. So, right. So, if we reduce the production of these enzymes, the COX one and COX two, which reduces your prostaglandins, etc. What are we doing? We're reducing the inflammation and its associated pain. Right. Fever. Yeah. I mean, just like most other NSAIDs, this will affect fever, but. Pre-hospitally, we're generally not giving people Ketorolac for fever, okay? So contraindications, just like most of the rest of your NSAID family, people have allergies, obviously, to NSAIDs. So if people are allergic to Motrin, don't give them Toradol, because if you ask them, hey, are you allergic to Toradol? They're like, I don't know, never had it. Nope, it's probably not a good response. It's like, are you allergic to NSAIDs? Ask them specifically, like, use the, you know, brand name Motrin, because that's what most people just, everybody calls it Motrin. Um, even if it's any number of other manufacturers or the generics, right? This is one you got to be aware of because this is not a super common allergy, but it's definitely out there. I've run across a few people that do have it. Other people, obviously, like some of the other drugs, asthma, nasal polyps, other allergic reactions. So patients that do have a history of asthma, urticaria, or other allergic type reactions after taking aspirin or other NSAIDs, you should not be giving them your Ketorolac, right? Again, because this is a bit stronger, so you could cause, like if they have a, a mild to moderate allergic reaction with 200 milligrams of Motrin or ibuprofen, we'll keep it generic, giving them 30 milligrams of a more concentrated drug in the form of Torlac might be a bad choice, okay? Uh, impaired kidney function, right? So ibuprofen is processed, processed out of the body through the kidneys, uh, just as an aside. So acetaminophen goes through your liver. And we probably talk about some of the other OTCs in more depth, maybe in another episode, maybe not, we'll see. So kidney function, right? So if you have a patient who is, I mean, believe it or not, these folks do find their way into the woods or in wilderness austere settings. And it could be that you got called to a campground, right? Like we get calls to campgrounds where folks are in their RVs, not intending to go deep into the woods, but you're, you know, in the middle of nowhere, essentially, right? So folks do have impaired kidney function that do go out into some remote settings. So that's something you need to be aware of because these drugs can be pretty harsh on the kidneys. So be cautious of that. Gastrointestinal issues, just like with regular ibuprofen, people with histories of ulcers, peptic ulcers, GI bleeding, etc. This can cause an issue for them as well. Use caution. It's like many of the other drugs Mike's hinted on couple other times, you know, when we're discussing some of these other things, sometimes you have to pick the lesser of two evils. If you know somebody's got, uh, you know, I've got an ulcer, is it actively bleeding? I don't think so. 
you know, this is still your best pain management choice. This is the, you know, maybe you're allergic to opioids or opiates. And this is what I've got that I can give you for that broken, whatever it is. We might have to do that and just keep an eye on you. All right. So you need to keep an eye out on things. If you can avoid them when any of these contraindications pop up, absolutely. Especially the more severe ones, like obviously allergic reactions to them. No. If somebody's at, well, hopefully there's not somebody that's out there in severe end stage renal uh, disease because they should be getting dialyzed a lot more often than you should see them in their RV. Unless they've got a sweet portable unit, which they do make home dialysis systems, but that's a different issue. Hopefully you're not going to run into this too much, but be aware just because it's essentially an NSAID and it's pretty benign doesn't mean it isn't without its problems and you shouldn't do your due diligence with your patient history. All right. So with that, concerns for wilderness use. So again, extended use, and we're talking over days, has that impact on kidney function, right? Because you're now just building up more and more and more. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but even if you go pull a bottle of ibuprofen out of your, you know, your bathroom counter, or your sink, wherever you keep your stuff, and you look at the back of that thing, they're going to tell you, you should only take this for a couple of days and then lay off. And they're going to give you, you know, this is where your max dosing for regular ibuprofen comes in, et cetera. You don't want to build that up and just slam your kidneys full of this NSAID and cause them to do all this extra work, put too much strain on it, and then cause them to go into a kidney failure. Even if it's acute and doesn't last, it's, it's something you want to try to avoid. Now, five days, it's still for most of us wilderness folks, five days, not, I won't say it's not possible. There are some remote, remote places. Like if you're working up supporting guiding work or expeditions, you know, out Denali and some other places where it might take you a few days to get out. And this is your drug of choice because you want to keep them on any of the other narcotic pain meds for that long. You know, just keep that in mind. If you're working other remote and austere sites where it might take a few days, like you work again, I always loved the the offshore oil rigs because that's a very unique location. You know, you're in this, mm-hmm. a building with lights and usually steady power and heat and AC, but you're extremely remote. It might take you days due to sea state to get a boat or a helicopter out to you. So use caution if you've got to be drugging people up with with things like this because um, you can cause some downstream effects for them. Again, managing unknown allergic reactions. If it happens, you need to be prepared for it. So again, most of us that work in a wilderness environment, especially in the U.S., epinephrine with us is pretty much a standard. Bee stings, other animal bites. Where Mike and I are at, there are mm-hmm. blackberries that grow wild and natural in a lot of the trail areas. And people are like, oh, blackberries, those look delicious. And they've never had a blackberry before. And next thing you know, their throat's closing. So you'll manage an, an allergic reaction to essentially any drug, just like you would any other allergic reaction, just be prepared for it. And again, if you believe that, you know, if they tell you, it's like, oh no, I'm allergic to NSAIDs, I can't have Motrin, okie dokie. How how do you feel about, how do you feel about narcotics? Oh, I really don't want those. Well, my friend, I mean, at that point I can offer some Tylenol or acetaminophen and that might be what they get. It might not be the most beneficial, but it is something. So if that's an option, you might go straight at uh, OTC. So I haven't, I don't think I've ever run a patient yet who has had an allergy to all of the primary analgesics. Uh, ketamine might be your, your best choice at that point. Most people don't know they're allergic to ketamine until they've had it. Uh, it's just because it's not a very common drug people get. You know, you go to the hospital and you break an arm, they might send you home with Tylenol 3 with codeine kind of drugs and things like that. And you might learn that 
Typically, it's going to be an opiate combined right. with an NSAID. You're not going to yeah. be getting ketamine for pain yeah. management and at home. So unless you got it in the hospital in the ED for something, you know, you're probably not going to know you're allergic to ketamine until you get it the first time. So that's, and again, be prepared to treat that. What a great opportunity to yeah. find out. Here, and here's one of the final notes on Tordal. And this is in the wilderness section just because it is, it is very common. Because the way Ketorolax Lestordal works in the kidneys, people that are dehydrated and are kind of at a reduced level of kidney function because they're not flowing fluids through it are at an increased risk. Now, that's not to say don't give them the Toradol, but it also means make sure you're also getting them some fluids. So for us in the wilderness setting, especially right now for Mike and I, where we are in the U.S., North America, it is our hot season. It is hot, it is humid, and it is one of those environments where people are not drinking enough water. Even the ones that think they're drinking enough water probably are not. So that's something you just need to keep in the back of your mind as well. Again, not saying don't use it. It's an excellent drug. It's one of my first go-tos, especially if it's that isolated lower extremity thing and you're already not in a lot of pain. I will almost always default to going to Toradol as my first line med for that. Um, just because its pain management qualities are really good. It helps a bit with that swelling, et cetera. Although, you know, you could talk about some of the research that some of that swelling is good and beneficial. You know, your body doing its own self-splinting. You just don't want to go and get too carried away because that causes other issues downstream or could if the swelling is severe and goes could. on for a long period of time. But that's another, that's another episode. Yeah. All right. And that's the last of the drugs we're going to talk about today. So, Mike, what else you got for us? Uh, that's about it. I feel like that's as deep as we're going to go here, but it's worth note that you can go deeper mm. on medications. I'm not, if, if you want to, <laughs> feel free. Uh, in general, this is about the depth of understanding that's important conversationally and treatment-wise with patients. Uh, I'm not a pharmacist. My understanding of the molecular structure and being able to draw the diagrams of the molecular structure of these things is never going to happen because I ain't no pharmacist. But if you're going to be treating patients, and, and I'll even, I'll take this to a more general statement of even rural EMS where you have 30 to 40 to 50 mm. minute transport times, understanding these concepts we talked about, especially with pain management, because that's what we talked about today. But in all medications you're administering, it's really easy to give somebody a dose of a drug and get to the hospital and hand them off and be like, I gave them 50 mics of fentanyl. It's when the redosing comes into play or when we're doing drips for extended periods of time. Uh, fun fact, I'm a huge fan of yeah. pump tends to keep that, you know, bouncing uh, drip bags, not so great. Drip sets are not the most accurate way to give medication. And again, over time, as these things build up, all of these medications we talked about have a longer half-life than what is typically talked about in class as the effect timeline for the medication. So it's the second, third, fourth dosing of these medications that really comes into play. So keep that in mind. If you're in an environment where you're giving medications for an extended period, this is when uh, you need to really start caring about you know, the, the multi, I'll call it the multiplicative effect of multiple doses or an extended drip of a medication. Yeah. What have you got, Sean? I would disagree, you know, right after just knowing your general pharmacology, knowing your drugs, it is understanding that, yes, just because you gave 50 mics earlier and you go to redose them in 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever your plan is, does not mean the original 50 mics is gone. There might be 10 still floating in there. We're just throwing out random numbers. And so now they've got... Random, yeah. 60 on board and then the next time when you dose them they're now have 70 on board and the next thing they have 80 and then you know it's just an example that's not actual math that we've worked out right there but that is what you need to understand is for those extended patient contact times where you're multiply multiply 
where you're giving multiple doses over time, multiple. that's the one other piece you got to keep with you. All right. And yeah. just as, uh, you know, and I think that wraps up pretty much what we talked about on this show. But as another show aside, I know we've had a, a couple of fans make comments to us asking why we don't talk about going into more detail on some of like treatment modalities. Like we talked about a little bit about airway management and stuff, and we don't go into a lot of detail on some of these things. And Mike and I's going in position has always been, there are a lot of other really good podcasts or educational resources that can get you deep into some of these things. So we try to yep. keep it at the wilderness austere medicine piece, which is why we, you know, we don't go into necessarily like, we're not going to talk about doing RSI necessarily, unless there's a, a wilderness spin on RSI, which you're doing it in the dirt, right? That's about the... Yeah, that's pretty much it. Right? So people ask, oh, how come you don't talk about some of these other things? Well, there are some great resources that are out there, some other amazing podcasts to listen to, some other books, other YouTube, et cetera. That's why we don't get into a lot of this. But with that, if you're a fan of the show. But I mean, if it turns out you want us to and we, we'll have you want to, well, I mean, I'm willing to consider it. It's just not what we yeah. focused on. So yeah, if you got any ideas or not even ideas, like we have lots of ideas for the show. It's not like we need you to tell us what you got, but we do like, uh, we do like the feedback. We do get feedback from a few fans every now and again, which has led to us producing some mm -hmm. episodes. So if you've got topics you'd like more in information on, send them our way. Uh, send them to the email address that follows us in the closer and we'll, we'll happily uh, get to it eventually sometime sooner rather than later, depending on what it is. And we've got some, uh, we got a lot of stuff coming up. I know we were recording a few more episodes. We've got, I think right now we've got four more interviews lined up with some folks that we really need to get scheduled with each of these individuals to get them all recorded. Some pretty good. We got some interesting folks coming on soon. So if you like the interviews with with some of our guests, we've, we've got, like I said, I think we've got four folks lined up right now that we just need to sit down and, and interview and do shows with. And uh, we've got a bunch of other topics coming out for the rest of this year. So thanks. And if you got anything, send them our way. Yeah, for sure. All right, man. I think with that, we're going to get all this done. All right. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMS OTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.